Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we welcome Alex Dowding of Submarine, line producer on the Amazon original series Undone. That's right, another Squiggly Podcast with me, Ben Mitchell, and Steve Henderson. Hello, Steve. Hello, Ben. How are you? I am all right. Episode 94. 94. My God, man. If these were years, we'd be very old. It feels like the closer we get to 100, the further away it seems. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, we'll get there in the end. It's the opposite of life. So how are things up north? uh, Prepping the beast that is the Manchester Animation Festival. Yeah, uh, very good. Uh, It's careering towards us we've just announced some uh new screenings obviously these are these are things that take a little bit of extra time to get together but once we got them all together and we got the 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 go-ahead from various institutions and uh, and channels and such like we were able to announce uh that we'll be actually screening klaus in netflix's first animated feature film uh, on the big screen the day before it is released and we've got a screen of steven universe as well amongst uh, loads of other bits and bobs but uh, yeah, it's it's going well, mate. It's going really well. It's it's that time of year again. You know, it comes around again and again and again. Uh, and yeah, really looking forward to this year's edition. It's going to be a big one. Tremendous. Well, that sounds like a good few days. We'll be up there, of course. I believe the whole squiggly uh, gang will be, as far as I'm aware. We got the whole squiggly gang coming up to to math again. We got the squiggly quiz. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. I mean, it'd be, I'm looking forward to it after I've written it. So I've still got, <laughs> I've still not thought of any questions for the quiz, as is tradition up until about four seconds before the quiz starts. Uh, as you can tell by the spelling mistakes every year, Ben, as I make you read out. <laughs> well, I trust there'll be another singing round this year. Is that what you want? Well, I think it's what everyone wants. <laughs> the, f- the feedback in the room was palpably positive. Yeah, when they put their hands away from their ears, I think uh, there, was a, there was a kind of a, a goodwill in the air, uh, or, or a sort of a pleading. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that pleading was for them to have more singing. Uh, so yeah, all right, I'll do another singing round. We'll have to think of some, we'll have to think of some clever questions for us to sing at people, or we could just have not have a singing round, but just sing everything at them. Who just sing all the questions? I like that. And then the squiggly screening as well. This looks like a good one as well. Uh, yeah, I've been beavering away, uh, getting that one all worked out. Uh, should be a fun one. I imagine by the time this episode is up, there'll be some information on the site about uh, what we're going to be showing. But uh, yeah, I've been mining the uh, highlights of the past year's pre-selection duties, as well as uh, some stuff that's been submitted to the Squiggly Showcase. Which goes to show, you should submit stuff to the Squiggly Showcase. Because mm-hmm. we keep a little eye on it sometimes for events such as this. Um, no, I'm really, it's going to be a nice hour. A solid batch of fabulous animation. Going to be a fun week. Fantastic. Of course, you get a lot of bang for your buck with the Squiggly events, being that they're free to pass holders. But maybe you don't have uh, all three days off. Maybe you're in employment, you tryhards. Or maybe you just don't like being in the city for more than 24 hours at a time. You can buy individual tickets for events as well, should you yes. so desire. Yes, indeed. 
there's uh, lots of events, sort of individual events and stuff like that that look like uh, good fun, definitely worth checking out. There's some behind-the-scenes stuff, there's workshops, things like uh, ooh, going behind the scenes of Sean the Sheep. Michael Do Dr. Witt always does uh, fantastic masterclasses. I'm looking forward to seeing him again. He's coming to Manchester for the first time ever. He's never been to Manchester. Delaying the inevitable. I know, I know. <laughs> Lots of opportunities to uh, go out and get pissed as well, which is... Uh, That's what festivals are all about. Pretty much, yeah. That's my kind of... At this point now, I have to designate times of the year when I can go out and get absolutely f***-faced. <laughs> you know, back in the days of my uh, hot-headed and naive youth... It was a pretty regular occurrence, but these days it's like, okay, let's plan the subsequent weeks slash months around a certain <laughs> night that I can designate as a night where I cut loose to give me sort of proper recovery time. <laughs> it will have been, I guess, two months since encounters, so that's just about enough time to get absolutely bladded. So if you want to see me making a drunken <laughs> of myself, that's another perk of math. <laughs> we should put that on a ticket. Or maybe the quiz. <laughs> Rather disappointingly, I've been informed that when I'm absolutely hammered, I behave exactly the same way as when I'm sober. <laughs> Which I guess probably just means I'm a d- d- foolish bellend all of the time. I've never seen you oh, drink. You I've seen you drink, but I've never seen you drunk. So I think That's that could probably be... Yeah, I think that could probably be the case. The last time I got, like, blackout ratted would have been your stag do. Really? So, yeah, you were definitely present that night. In body. Or maybe you weren't present, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's brilliant. So, anyway, you can find the full program at manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. The Squiggly events are going to be on Wednesday, the 13th of November. The Squiggly screening is at 5pm, and the Squiggly quiz will be right after at 7pm in the uh, home event space. Looking forward to seeing you all again, and maybe some new faces, too get stuck in so uh obviously the animation festival ends up with our fabulous award ceremony uh but there's some more awards coming up is that right ben there is awards all over the shop uh not too long afterwards uh, early in the new year we'll see the return of the british animation awards or the bars uh the only ceremony in the uk devoted to rewarding animation uh i guess that's been around a while now 23 years yeah uh, but it's biennial so this is the 13th edition that'll be yeah early next year uh recently they announced their award categories i think there's been a little bit of a shake-up they're under new management of course for many years they were run by jane pilling who we had on the podcast i guess for the british animation awards uh these days it's run by helen brunsden who i'm not sure if we actually have talked to her on the podcast before but she's been a uh squiggly advocate and supporter and is very active in the industry and uh, community and has done all sorts of things on animated productions as well as just a sort of curation of uh, industry events but anyway the uh, award categories that have been announced so listen up because you might have something that fits into this best animation in a commercial best design graphics best long-form animation best voice performance best use of sound Best Children's Preschool Series, Best Children's Series, Best Music Video, Best Short Film, Best Commissioned Animation, Writer's Award, Original Short Form Content, Postgrad Student Film, Undergrad Student Film, and New Categories for Innovation, Best Original Music, and Social Good. 
they have a film freeway portal at the moment, so I think they go into a little bit more information as far as what those categories denote. So yeah, if you're a studio or an independent or a professional or a student or anywhere in between, it seems like there'll be a category that accommodates your output. I think a squiggly podcast could scoop about four of those, Ben. I f***ing hope so. Best voice performance, best use of sound, social good. I think we do a lot of that. I think we're, we're good for that, yeah. I imagine that's what they invented the category for. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, which else should we have? Uh, innovation. There we go. Oh, uh, yeah. We interview filmmakers. Innovated in making up a load of nonsense. (laughs) But there's also uh, Public Choice Awards uh, for favourite short film, favourite music video. So there's going to be some screenings coming up. This is always the nice thing about the BAAs. There's always a screening, like, locally. uh, And uh, you always get to see the very best of the last few years uh, of animation. Uh, New stuff, old stuff. It all comes together. It's like a nice kind of walk down memory lane for us, really, isn't it? It is indeed. I mean, my memory's not so firm these days, but (laughs) the website is BritishAnimationAwards.com, and they're going to be obviously sort of regularly updating that site and their social media feeds as far as determining where some of these screenings are going to be. So keep your eyes open for them. The website's also going to be doing a little bit more sort of editorial content, I understand. They've started a series of kind of retrospectives on the artists who have been involved in creating the prizes. Mm. That's one of the traditions of the British Animation Awards is the prizes, the awards themselves are all bespoke and created by fairly important names in the animation industry. Designers, animators, illustrators, directors. They're always pretty special. Which is nice. It's nice that they've kind of kept a record of all of that. Yeah. Because, you know, this many awards times 13 editions... (sighs) You could see how it would get a little bit lost. So the first editions awards are already up. Possibly by the time uh, this podcast goes up, there'll be uh, a follow-up post as well. Anyway, they're going to be carrying that on in the lead-up to the award ceremony, as well as some other bits and bobs. So yeah, follow them on uh, social media and check out the website and all that good stuff. Maybe submit some work, fingers crossed. Maybe we'll see you at the awards ceremony. It's incredible, isn't it, when you look at the uh, the actual awards from previous years and see that... Although the the brief, I suppose, is to do something with sheep, <laughs> I think that's quite clear. Uh, it's, it's what's what's so interesting about it is the fact that it, they've never really been uh, much in the way of of repetition. Mm. There's no kind of uh, the, the the ideas are always unique, and even for like artists such as uh, Daniel Greaves, uh, who's done it. How many times has, has Daniel Greaves done it? He's probably done it more than anyone uh, next to, uh, I would suppose, uh, somebody like Derek Hayes, who's pretty much done it for uh, every single year. Uh, but yeah, they always come up with something completely unique and uh, just real real works of art that you know people should really be uh, submitting to and hoping to, to get their hands on. Absolutely. So yeah, now we've gotten you all whipped up and covetous. Get your work in. They must have been so overjoyed the first time they worked out the acronym was BAR. And like, okay, sheep, <laughs> that's us, that's our theme. It works, what can you say? Indeed. Our most beloved national exports are animated sheep, so there must be something to it. That's true. That is certainly true. I suppose on that subject it's worth mentioning the shedload of uh, Sean the Sheep sequel 
coverage that's been up on the site. Mm. Have you seen Farmageddon? I've not, no. I've not had a chance to see Farmageddon. I've been uh, busy working away on the festival, but we've got a we've got a screening of it, and I think that's going to be the first time that I'll watch it. You've seen it? I have not. Oh, but I uh, I will try and catch it at MAF if not before. Mm. But everyone I'm I'm every review I'm seeing, including uh, Martin, who wrote the review for us, has nothing but positive things to say about it. I mean, the mainstream media are in love with it as well, mm. in a way that it's quite distinct from mainstream media coverage of other Rodman projects to be brutally honest like i don't recall early man for a recent example getting quite as consistently um glowing reviews early man didn't go down well did it it wasn't i think their most beloved work you know there i mean there are a billion factors that come into play i suppose with how something's going to be received Mm. sometimes things bomb and they become classics later i personally imagine i will enjoy this movie more because i enjoyed the first show on the sheep a lot more than most recent ardman films i just feel like it maybe it's just because of my age and you know we had um when we had alex on a few episodes ago and we're reminiscing about you know those early days of ardman i think this particular every time we talk about show on the sheep we make the point of like how this is the the vehicle that feels the most like old ardman Mm. you know very kind of silent comedy oriented and uh slapstick and physicality and ingenious set pieces and things like that so my concern was that by making it sci-fi which this new film has done that they then will throw a whole bunch of special effects at it and not necessarily bother so much with you know craft oriented uh story ingenuity but generally speaking people don't seem to be saying that's the case so at any rate, we've got uh, interviews with the directors, uh, Rich Phelan and Will Beecher, and the producer Paul Culey up on Squiggly, if you're interested in learning more about how uh, the film came together, as well as a review and a set report and uh, lots of good stuff. So, yeah. I think what's nice about that as well is we've been doing Squiggly for so long now. I think we've got one of Richard's first interviews on the site. He's now directing a a, you know, a multi-million pound feature for the UK's biggest animation uh, feature company. Uh, and yeah. we've got his student film <laughs> up on the site somewhere uh, where, uh, so if you if you can give a little search for Richard's name on uh, on Squiggly and you'll be able to find his, uh, his first interview. I remember that one was a nightmare to transcribe because mm. it was before we had proper microphones. It was one of my first interviews, and I was interviewing him and Francesca. They both graduated from the NFTS that year. And Francesca, I think, won an award at MAF last year or the year before. Yeah. But she's been doing pretty well as well. Like, that year was, you know, they, they turned out some pretty good talent. But I remember that it was recorded in, like, the really busy Encounters Festival bar. Mm. And so it's like the noise level of just people screaming over each other and these sort of quite mild-mannered animators <laughs> like <laughs> offering up interview quotes. That took so long to transcribe. But it worked out okay in the end. Yeah. War stories <laughs> of the early days of running an industry blog. Uh, what was his film called? Uh, his, his original film. Uh, it, was, it was the one about the beaver, wasn't it? Was it Damned? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a surprise. I think he was already at that point pipped to be doing work at Ardman. Like, I think he pretty much just hopped onto an Ardman project from that graduating. 
Mm. Um, not directing, I don't think immediately, but I think he certainly was involved in, you know, quite high tier creative roles from a, a pretty early point. So yeah, great to see it sort of culminate in this film. Fantastic. So yeah, nothing else sort of in the uh, in the old cinemas. I'm particularly uh, chomping at the bit for. I gather they've done a version of uh, I Lost My Body with an English cast. So mm-hmm. hopefully that means there'll be some kind of release coming up soon. Um, or it's coming to Netflix. That was it. So not the big screen, but no, no, uh, no. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I was initially sort of interested in seeing the new Adams family, but that's not getting very good reviews. I think design design wise, it looks brilliant because they've gone for that original kind of the original comic from way back when, you know, pre Tim Burton. So design mm. wise, it looks unique at least. But uh, yeah, it's been getting a lot of flack, shall we say? Yeah, I don't know. For my fondness for you know the source material. I'm aware that 90% of the time anything is done with that property, with that premise, it's very lazily done and kind of rushed. And they coast on the whole thing of like, and they, they're, they're wacky. It's like every day is opposite day with this family. <laughs> when it rains, they're in a good mood. What? <laughs> they have a graveyard in the garden, Ben. A graveyard. <laughs> what? I've got flowers. Yeah, this sort of day and age, like, everyone knows people who have, you know, slightly left-of-centre lifestyles. They're not really much different. Mm. So it's not really an odd premise in the way it might have been in the 30s or 40s. There's a film festival happening in Bristol at the moment, and we went to see one of the old uh, 90s movies uh, in a graveyard, fittingly. And uh, those ones just nailed it. They just got it right. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of stuff where you watch films when you were a kid, from when you were a kid, and you have a fondness, like a nostalgia for it, because, oh, this was a film I liked when I was a kid. But this film, don't, it just gets better, like, every f***ing time I see it. Yeah. And that's, I guess, hard to beat, if you're ever going to do a reboot or whatever, a new version of it. So maybe that's in a lot of people's minds when they're not giving it particularly good reviews. Or we catch it at some point. It is. It is a fantastic film. Is it, did you see uh, which one? Did you see was it Adam's Family Values or was it uh, the original? Adam yeah, the film? second one. Oh, that's amazing. That that film with uh, Christopher Lloyd uh, as Uncle Fester, and I think it's Joan Cusack, isn't it? As this kind of uh, gold digging sort of uh, woman who takes him away from the family and tries to just basically steal his fortune. It's just yeah. yeah. This is very kind of coyote roadrunner <laughs> series of of ways in which he's trying to kill him for his money, yeah. and he just evades every attempt, and it's brilliant. And the, the camp counselors, the, <laughs> and he's talking about his summer camp plays as vision. Yeah. Oh, so good. I, I, I do like the bit with uh, at the end uh, the the son of Pubert, who's <laughs> which is which is a name which oddly's never caught on. Uh, it's the, the the son when he's going round the house uh, and is this kind of uh, Heath Robinson, Rube Goldberg esque kind of uh, that he's going round the house and I remember like bowling balls going down the stairs that mean that the baby flies over to there and then he knocks something off a shelf and it's like the beginning of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's it's that that's going on um, as as is it's heading towards uh, you yeah. know, the, the the grand finale. It's just so well directed, brilliant. It's actually, you know what it is? It's directed like a cartoon in a lot of respects. 
Mm. There's a, a sort of rhythm and music to the timing of a lot of the scenes. Like there's one bit in particular where it's you could almost put like a beat in the background for how well timed out it is for the dubious special effects that occasionally rear their heads. Yeah, I liked it a lot. There have been so many versions, though, even since those movies came out, and I, I last about 20 seconds. I didn't know that Tim Curry did one. Yeah, it was on TV once, and, like, yeah, I think I made it, like, a minute and a half, and I'm like, yeah. and I felt it's worse, because I actually quite like Tim Curry. Mm. If someone was going to maybe try and fill those boots, you'd maybe think he'd be in with a shot, but you could tell it was a very, very low-rent production, mm. like, made-for-TV versus the grand spectacle i guess of the cinema versions yeah but yeah it never goes away it's always there in some form or other so you can appreciate the intent that goes behind keeping it alive i certainly don't feel like this is like an ash can film mm. but yeah not a critical hit so far we'll see time may tell everyone who i haven't actually watched missing link yet <laughs> But everyone is saying now that they're just getting around to watching it, how much they like it. And that got pretty much panned. I saw, I saw that. I've been seeing a lot of a lot of real positivity that's coming from it. Like now, that the, now that it's kind of trickling its way down to the, the hard-working animators that obviously didn't have time to see it when it was released, it's now making its way to them. And they're saying, oh, my God, look how amazing this animation is. Look how amazing this, this work is. It might be nice to sort of, if we would have watched it when it first came out and uh, and, yeah. and given it a, a you know a fair run at the box office uh, there and then, because they always do good stuff. I mean, it's, not, it's hardly a surprise. Anyone who's seen Kubo and the Two Strings or Paranorman or anything that Leica have, have put out there, you know, they p- produce some amazing work. Yeah, it's a shame, you know, the, the sort of diminishing returns on each film as well is a concern because it obviously isn't a sustainable business uh, approach i mean it's not their intent obviously they'd like to make more money with each film but mm. hopefully there'll be something that kind of breaks them out of that pattern but yeah by all accounts missing link is uh, worth your time absolutely we may even have a copy of it to give away at the squiggly quiz so if you act fast you might be able to get in before anyone else Ooh. snaps it up yeah that's good another thing i saw in the news before we kind of lead in, I guess, to this episode's guest. It's currently a bidding war for South Park, the streaming rights. Mm, I've seen that's this as well. estimated at between 450 and 500 million. <whistles> I think I might have to let go of the dream of getting Matt and Trey on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like I was sort of, you know, when Booker Mormon hit, I'm like, oh, they're, they're, they're pretty huge now. I have no idea how you would even begin you know, to get past the f- intern who works for them. Yeah. I, um, I don't think the intern would be able to, to get to the person who gets to the person who gets to the person who, who knows the person who gets to the person who actually is allowed to almost look in the eyes of the people who produce South Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did actually, I saw them do a thing in Montreal about 10 years ago. They did a, a kind of intimate stage Q&A thing mm. as part of a comedy festival up there and people got really annoyed because it was Builders South Park Live oh no was the name of the event and it it should have been like an evening with Matt and Trey should have been the name of the thing mm. but the problem is there are these other events called The Simpsons Live or Family Guy Live where they get the cast to 
perform an episode live yeah in the funny voices and all that so people thought that that was what was going to happen with the south park event so that got some pretty bad reviews everyone who was there had a good time like it was it was a really interesting stage discussion but i guess there were like a handful of people who were just kind of stewing like oh they're not doing an episode first of all they speed up half of the voices yes. so they they don't sound like the characters in real life because you know, half the characters are kids, so it doesn't really work like that. He did, I think, do a song in a Cartman-y voice, mm. which in real life just kind of sounds like his voice. <laughs> just yeah. a bit like, maybe, yeah. But it was great. It was right when uh, Isaac Hayes left, so there were some great stories about like the Scientology aftermath and all of that stuff, and they were really... It was really flying high as a show, you know. And they seemed incredibly personable and humble and easy to talk to. But, of course, the reality is they're gajillionaires. Yeah. And everyone is fighting over the rights to stream this show. What's interesting is it is streaming on Amazon and Netflix at the moment. But on Netflix, they're streaming the first series and I think the last couple of series. And then the rest in between is this kind of smattering of curated episodes like you can't watch all the episodes on netflix for some reason Hmm. so they've picked i guess what they've determined are the best episodes which having a little browse through unfortunately doesn't really line up with my opinion on the matter but amazon has all of it uh, up until i guess a year or so ago and it's interesting i hadn't known that they'd ever done this but i guess a few years ago for when the blu-rays came out they re-exported every episode that they made before HD was the broadcast standard. So you can watch episodes from like 1996 right. in like full HD. And it's it's very bizarre. Do you see every scratch? Well, that's the thing. It's like, it's, it's so clean and so kind of... When you were watching it just on old 90s televisions, mm. it looked a lot rougher around the edges than it was. And I had always assumed that they'd kind of tweaked the process a lot along the way. But actually, like, for the most part, some of the designs have changed a little bit. And a couple, and a lot of the animation approaches have changed. But the general look of it is very similar to the way it looks now. Mm. The voices are very different. You know, the voices are a lot more like everyone's shouting all the time. And then, of course, the other thing that dates it tremendously is the comedy i guess of the first couple of years yeah it's pretty light (laughs) it's it's very slow and dry and light and not remotely subversive or controversial or challenging but at the time it was like can you believe what they're getting away with they had to bleep out a swear word (laughs) these children they're eight years old and they swear (laughs) one of them's fat and the other one doesn't take his hood off it's uh, it- <laughs> <laughs> they kill one of the kids in every episode. They're mental. But he comes back the next one, and there's no explanation, Ben. There's no explanation. It's well random. <laughs> God, I think it was even before people started using the word random. I think uh, I remember. I remember being really excited by it at school because it was on late night on Channel Four, and everyone was really, you know, it's in South Park. It's absolutely, you know, really, really going on about how fantastic he's got a, he's had a satellite up his bum it was incredible and then <laughs> <laughs> it was great uh, and 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 then obviously so everyone sort of kept watching it for for kenny dying oh how's he gonna die this week uh and uh, yeah and i think maybe those first couple of seasons people they were kind of just setting up well what they did is they kind of set up a platform to just 
attack everyone. <laughs> just just <laughs> every kind of uh, socio-political kind of... Uh, anything has just been attacked by South Park. It is... And, I think uh, Matt Stone said it in a interview that they're an equal opportunities offender, and I really, really you've got to admire that type of uh, what it is that they've kind of just gone for. Well, it came at the end. When you think of when it started, it was right at the end of the hysterical wave of PC culture dominating the nineties, mm. and we are in another wave of that right now, like hysteria around what can and can't be done and said. In comedy, in a similar way, there was the politically correct people, and then there were the people who, you know, just felt compelled to throw backlash at it. And you know, oh, if you're politically correct, you're weak or you're you're emotionally unintelligent. And somewhere between the two stances, there was a kind of middle ground. And then eventually, people calmed the f- down, <laughs> and we were able to get stuff like South Park and Family Guy and Beavis and Butthead. Not all of them have, you know, withstood the test of time. I would say that South Park is still sometimes quite funny, but it's not appointment viewing. But I'll I'll keep up to speed with it. I, you know? I'd say that it is always funnier. There's not a new. There's, there's the thing for me with South Park is I can watch the whole episode and just you know my eyes can glaze over. But in every single episode, there's something that will make me laugh out loud. Like not just you know. Mm. Huh? Or, but like a proper like guffaw, and it, it's something yeah. in the the setup. It's something in the build. I can't say that for the Simpsons, unfortunately. The new Simpsons, uh, I, I can never say that for Family Guy. But I can always say that for South Park. And it's you know it's not been going nearly as long, but it's getting up there. It's mm. in the twenties, and yeah, they you know I mean they've they've changed the um, they do change things around with it as well, which is I think for the most part, been quite successful with changing the formula. Mm. They now, I think, have a lot more inter-season continuity from episode to episode. Like, there are kind of longer-running story arcs that span across multiple episodes, which they didn't really used to do until about five or six years ago. Mm. And then, you know, the way of the, the world is has kind of served up so much easy material for them. Yeah. Uh, the whole thing with, like, Mr. Garrison being Donald Trump, essentially. It almost makes it too easy. But then I think they had pretty much made an episode about how Donald Trump loses the election. Yes. <laughs> they were so sure he would. And then they had to redo it, like, at really, really short. Notice. Ah, fuck. <laughs> we got cocky. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are, there are definitely elements, I think, of each year that I, I enjoy a great deal. I think they're sort of sticking with the longer story arcs, but they're making sure that each episode kind of has enough of a contained story that you can just dip in and out of it. So I think they've worked out a pretty good balance with that. You mentioned watching it on Channel 4, and I'd forgotten, because, yeah, it was originally on Channel 4 after, like, Sky. Mm. And then I guess Channel 4 just dropped it. Yeah. Or didn't renew it or whatever. Which, in the current light of day, when people are bidding 450 to $500 million on it, probably wasn't the greatest business decision of Channel 4. Maybe. Maybe not. I think, you know, I mean, in the animation community, at least, people look towards Channel 4 as a kind of, you know, a, a sort of a beacon uh, of, of what they did and, and, and kind of plead, you know, please get back into animation. But maybe... Maybe they started showing the cracks around then, you know, with a sort of attitude towards animation when when reality television became the thing 
that everyone was investing all their uh, energy into, you know, because obviously they had Big Brother and all that type of stuff as well. Yeah. But yeah. I remember very distinctly the, the day the first episode was broadcast. And a part of me, I think, feeling how very on brand it was with the Channel 4 output of oddball animation mm. late at night, you know? And I remember, like, I'm 13 years old, probably, at this point, but I remember, like, laughing pretty much the whole way through. It was, like, nothing I'd seen before. Yeah. And interestingly, in looking back at that first episode in the context of the rest of the series, it's actually quite distinct from the rest of the show. Like, it's almost like a standalone short film. It's made differently. I think it's the only one that they actually made, like, actually analog with cardboard cutouts. Yeah. That gives it a lot more of a kind of quirky feel, I think. I think it was then remade to match the TV series, wasn't it? But there is a version that was that was made using the cardboard cutouts. I'm not sure... Sh- if they did remake it, I don't think I've seen the remade version. Mm. But I did go... When I went back to the streaming versions that have been re-exported in HD, I'm like, I wonder what they did with the first one, because that wasn't done in Maya or whatever Maya's predecessor was in the late 90s. And what they've done for that one is it's still 4x3, it's still shot on film, but it is in HD. Mm. But it's definitely made in cardboard. So I guess maybe they made a decision to not include... A remade version of of the pilot. I could be wrong, Ben. I could I could, I could be admitting that I'm wrong about something. I I, I don't believe it. <laughs> anyway, it's been a fun little trip down memory lane. I've been watching an awful lot of uh, <laughs> streaming South Park while I still can. I guess whoever wins uh, the bidding war that may change things. So I'm getting my hours in now. Good stuff. Did you, did you see Did you see that the um, the Simpsons, the original uh, Simpsons, is actually going to be when it goes to Disney Plus for streaming, it's going to be streamed in four by three as well. So you can catch all the jokes that have been washed out, by, out. <laughs> yeah, for years. You can get those the early the early episodes when they were uh, at their finest. Uh, no arguments there. Whether absolute finest, you can uh, all, all the jokes are going to stay in there. So that's good. I will say that generally speaking, if I catch it on TV, it's on Channel 4, and they do show old versions of the show, like sometimes quite ropey quality Mm. versions. But when I've caught it on Sky, I guess they pretty much exclusively show this very hastily done remastered effort of the the sort of pre-digital era of the show, Yeah, which is, I guess running it through a filter to make the colors as flat as possible and make the line work as defined as possible. And it wrecks it. Yeah. And oftentimes they don't just crop it. They'll squish it. Mm. Like they'll fuck around with the screen dimensions. And that to me is like really irritating. I'm not sure most people don't notice, but when you work in animation production, that kind of thing sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. So yeah, I'm glad that they're at least preserving the, the look of it. Or at least the shape of it. Yeah. Some odd decisions in the world of remastering old stuff. Some of the things I've seen of, like, you know, Disney Blu-ray versions of their old films, where they remaster it to the point where the f***ing detail is lost. Yeah. With the film grain. They make it Cinderella look like a Flash cartoon. (laughs) Well, there's always that time trying to make Cinderella look like the, the DVD box artwork where she's blonde. Whereas in the film, she's clearly got, you know, she's clearly a redhead. Right. You know, it's, it, but I think a lot of that comes from when these things were originally 
presented they were presented on film so there was a light shining through uh, celluloid and then it was transferred to video and you can't get the same colors and then obviously obviously when it gets to the 90s early 2000s and the remastering and everything people uh, people want it to look like the Disney store version yeah. of these characters and they want you know the the, the colors of the uh, the little rodents that infest Cinderella's house to uh, to pop, you know, uh, and 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 it's all it's all these kind of little decisions that go along the way that really present. So it's through technology and it's also through poor decision making uh, that you get all these different versions and 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 different iterations. But yeah, there's something to be said about that original original stuff, and I do like seeing the the scratches on screen. A couple of weeks ago, I I was invited to give a an introduction to Brad Bird's the the Iron Giant uh, widescreen weekend, which is a, a, a festival that happens up in uh, up in Bradford every year. Uh, and the beauty of that festival is it's a big love letter to cinema, and they screen the Iron Giant uh, on thirty five millimeter, and it was beautiful. All the scratches and hairs, and just just the the, the crackle of of uh, original cinema. Uh, and you can tell when the the reels are coming up to change as well, because it gets a little bit more scratched, and uh, it, it's just. But it is it's part of that experience. It's part of that you know, watching a film and knowing that you're watching a film. It's the exhibition of it. It's just you know, it's a it's beautiful when you get it right. Absolutely, it's, it's such a pain when they get it wrong. Exactly, exactly, but. yeah. So when you're looking at, like you say, a, a flash cartoon <laughs> rather than, <laughs> you know, or, or a, you know, something to to resemble this kind of uh, oversaturated, vectorized version of uh, something that an animator spent hours laboring over just so it it matches whatever the Disney store has constructed within our mindset. So it matches nostalgia almost, yeah. nostalgia that didn't happen. That's where it gets weird. So for the time being, South Park is on Amazon uh, in sort of full, I guess, bar the most recent mm. handful of episodes. Actually, there's quite a few nice things on Amazon that I think Amazon, because the floodgates are open for a lot of people to just submit really shitty movies. <laughs> I know it's not as curated, I guess, as Netflix and an awful lot of the stuff on there you do have to pay for. You can't just go on and stream. But there's some pretty decent stuff there. They've, they've acquired some pretty good shows. I'm not sure why I'm being such a shill for them. They're not paying me anything. Fuck them. <laughs> when they start delivering stuff to my house without having to call me, then I'll throw them more love. Uh, one thing that I have uh, enjoyed quite recently, an original animated series uh, made for Amazon Prime. It's called Undone, which mm. sort of came from out of nowhere. It's, it involves Raphael Bob Waxberg. He's the co-creator. He has a good track record with you know stuff like BoJack Horseman on Netflix. A less good track record with Tuca and Bertie on Netflix, which got cancelled after one season. Mm. Which I thought was a bit of a shame. We talked about it on uh, Intimate Animation. But that was a show that I think if it had been given a few years to breathe and find its footing and maybe you know identified where its strengths were, yeah. could have become pretty strong. Because there are a lot of strong moments in the show as it was um at any rate this uh this other show which you can sort of tell there's a, a slightly shared vibe about all three of the shows they're all i mean this one isn't really a comedy it's more of a kind of dramedy whereas bojack and tuka 
at the beginning at least wear their comedy side more on their sleeve or more loudly and then they kind of let in the the drama stuff more gradually this is a show that i mean to me it felt a little bit like a kind of metaphysical almost sci-fi-ish fleabag type show it's sort of central story is about two sisters one of whom the main character is either suffering a major schizophrenic episode or she's going on an adventure through time and space. Yeah. And they never really give you a definitive answer either way, which I don't think is a spoiler. Like, it's it's kind of what the setup of the show is. Like, is she losing her mind or is she actually, does she actually have powers? And I think the the argument that could maybe be made for the former being the case is that the other creator... Uh, Kate Purdy, and I think she's probably the main creator of the show, she actually did suffer a schizophrenic episode in quite a major way in the not-too-distant past that she came out of the other side of, and in other interviews and things like that, promoting this show has talked about, you know, how it's kind of directly where this show came from, and how a lot of the elements of being um, beholden to these tricks that your brain is playing on you is that it's all perfectly logical in the moment. These things that on paper perhaps seem ludicrous or very out of the realm of possibility, your brain being the ultimate determining factor in all of that, telling you, no, actually, this is happening right now. Categorically, I can assure you, you have the ability to traverse time and change things with your mind and all sorts of... Or the fate of something very important is on your shoulders. That, I think, is quite a common thing in, in... these types of uh, episodes. Mm. So that is sort of the the premise of the show is this youngish woman whose father had died in a semi-mysterious car accident being approached by what she believes is the ghost of her father to avenge his death because he was actually murdered for the advancement he had made in his field that ties conveniently in with these abilities that she has the kind of nature of reality and how you can traverse it in ways not thought possible. So that's kind of the, uh, the adventure she goes on is finding out about her father's past and uh, his work and how she can actually get to the bottom of what really happened. And all of the kind of events of the show could also be interpreted as it's her processing things that she maybe already knew. So it's, it's quite cleverly written. It's an unusual setup. It's an unusual design and look and feel. It's largely rotoscoped animation. The characters are certainly all rotoscoped, and the environments are a kind of mix of, you know, sort of originally created environments and, I guess, uh, rotoscoped set pieces and things like that. Mm. It sort of falls aesthetically somewhere, I think, between, like, A Scanner Darkly and Loving Vincent. Okay. And obviously it's it's directed by uh, Hisko Hulsing, who directed Junkyard, uh, which I remember when that came out, being that kind of painted style uh, when that kind of hit the uh, uh, the animation circuit, uh, and it's it, it's kind of got that nice dark edge to it to the to the look of it as well, which is something of a, a Hulsing uh, style. Yeah, Richard Linklater as well, I think, was a kind of like influence on it. Mm. What's interesting is that it never really justifies itself like loving vincent like doesn't do that either but you get it because okay it's a film about vincent van gogh yeah so each shot is meant to look like a painting it's not that much to it but it's it's enough whereas with this 
I guess other than creating this sort of veneer of irreality or unreality, there's no real explanation as to why it has this kind of, you know, animated roto comic booky type look to it. Mm. But it's, it's appealing. You know, it looks good. It's not you could do rotoscoping in a in a rushed, ugly way, and this show certainly hasn't done that. And you know, the actual performances I think are great. Bob Odenkirk is the father, who uh, probably these days is most known for Breaking Bad. It doesn't seem that long ago when he first appeared in Breaking Bad, and I'm like, I don't think this guy can pull off serious characters because <laughs> his background was all skit comedy and stuff like that, like Mister Show, yeah. and. Uh, Boy, did he make me feel like a f***ing asshole <laughs> for doubting him. <sighs> if you've seen Better Call Saul in the interim, like he's absolutely fantastic in that. Yeah. I've not watched Undone yet, and it's not. Uh, it's something that's on my list, so when the festival's done, it's I'm, I'm going to... I'm actually re-watching Breaking Bad, but um, you know, very much... We're in, we're in the Saul era now, uh, season three, mm. so you know, Saul's at his best at the moment but uh, I'm really looking forward to watching Undone but looking at the sort of premise and stuff how kind of is it sort of life on Marsy the idea of you know is it time travel is it this is it that is it the other a little bit actually it made me think of life on Mars a couple of times as well as um what I kind of consider to be the life on Mars sub story in the Sopranos where for a few episodes he's just this whole other guy mm. called Kevin Finity I mean, it's a sort of similar thing of like what what actually is going on. We're given clues along the way, but there's an awful lot of stuff where because you're watching a lot of stuff kind of happen and happen again, and I that could be to sort of reinforce that she is creating false memories as she goes along, which which she's telling herself like deja vu that she's experiencing something multiple times. But as the audience, we're seeing it happen multiple times. So we're kind of being led more down the path of this is something that is actually happening in real life rather than something that's happening in her brain. She is kind of traversing this, you know, metaphysical multiverse where she can influence things. She can move things with her mind or she can do over mistakes that she's made. There's a point where she does something, a very, very significant social faux pas, and I think the second to last episode, that will cause a great deal of grief and dismay to her family. And so she does, she sort of draws on her power to kind of, you know, do a mulligan, do a, have a do-over. And so she makes a point of not making the same mistake. So we've seen her make the mistake. So it's like, okay, well, is what we saw before this false memory of her hypothetically imagining that she had done it mm. you know and they never really they never give you the the firm answer and certainly the the ending of the series is ambiguous enough that they could continue it to making more seasons but they could also say this is the end with a slightly ambiguous ending like they they kind of, they did a good job of sort of proofing it in that way which um, is appreciated because a lot of shows, when they really hope for uh, another season, they just end it on a really, really frustrating cliffhanger. Mm. And then if the show doesn't get picked up, you're like, oh, great, there's this show I liked that has no ending. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Undone is available on Amazon now. It's been critically, I think, going down rather well. I'd say if you're able to watch it, definitely give it your time. It's a little outside of... I guess what one would consider a sort of exclusively animated project, 
But, you know, as far as the animation processes at play and the way it all kind of interweaves, it's a fascinating watch from a technical standpoint, if nothing else. But the story is quite compelling, and, you know, it's, the characterizations are, you know, well done, and it's a nice little show. It's a miniseries. It's like eight episodes, I think. So we have an interview with Alex Dowding, who was a line producer at Submarine in the Netherlands, where a great deal of the visual generation was done. Uh, he's going to be breaking down how it all came together. Shall we hear from Alex? Let's. So, well, as you can probably hear, I am actually from the UK. I'm not, uh, I'm not Dutch. And I started off my career at a really small animation company in uh, London called Collingwood O'Hare. And that was fantastic because it was my first experience of animation. And I sort of was, because I'd worked in TV before, I was trying to get into television. God knows why. And it was, uh, animation was a sort of like a different world. It was like a, it was like a slower pace. It was more thoughtful people. Uh, it was like an interesting world. So I really cut my teeth in that company. And after that, I worked on a feature film called Tale of Despero. So I sort of like worked out how I could sort of learn how feature films were made in animation. But my, I think my career really got started when I was invited to go to uh, Paris to Illumination McGuff, where I worked on Despicable Me, and then Despicable Me 2, and then The Minions. So that was sort of part of my, my education. And I was always in a sort of production management role, like managing storyboard artists, managing um, editors, and when you're working in the in the editorial of a of a large animation film, all of the sort of the files from all the different departments come in. So you you see the layout, you see the animation, you see the lighting, you see the compositing. So it's like that was my education of how a pipeline works. Mm. So fast forward six or seven years after that, I had fallen in love with a Dutch girl and moved unexpectedly to Amsterdam. And there wasn't too much animation going on in Amsterdam until Bruno and Femke called me, the submarine, and said, hey, we've got this big project called Undone about to happen. Would you be interested in helping us manage it? And, uh, of course, it was like a super interesting project and something that I could really use my experience to uh, help manage through to, through to the finish line, which is what we did. And that brings us to today. Hmm. So can you give us an overview of the type of work Submarine generally does outside of Undone? Yeah, I mean, Submarine is, um, they they do all different types of uh, production. They do uh, documentary, feature film, um, uh, VR uh, experiences. and uh, But I think from an animation perspective, we're really traditionally a 2D animation studio. So uh, we made the film, well, we co-produced the film uh, Bunuel in the Labyrinth of Turtles last mm. year. Uh, we've done another um, 2D series for Amazon in the past called Willy Wishes. And, I mean, Dutch, I think Dutch animation um, is traditionally 2D. 3D is very sort of a new thing, uh, I think, apart from the sort of the advertising world, but that's a completely different world. Um Submarine is, is primarily a 2D animation studio. And uh, what was so interesting about Undone was that it was taking these traditional 2D animation techniques, which Submarine is so good at, and bringing in that world of um, oil painting and and mixture of sort of VFX and 3D. And the 3D world is what I knew about. So that's sort of like that's where the where the sort of partnership came from, I suppose. Hmm. 
So they approached you to work on the show. Do you know how they were approached to get involved with it initially? Yeah, so there's a guy called Tommy Pilotto, who I'm not sure if you're uh, if you're familiar with his work, but he's worked with Richard Linklater in the past on sort of on a waking life and a scanner darkly, and that was using traditional rotoscope techniques. But it, he'd already worked with Hisco Holding in the past, who is the, is the Dutch director for Undone. And I think that the guys at Tornanta, who uh, we work with, on you're aware who Tornanta is. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, a Michael Eisner's company. Yeah, in 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 LA, and um, they had seen Hisco's work, and Hisco was already friends with Tommy. So when they approached Hisco, and they wanted that sort of that dark oil painted rotoscope look that he has in his films. And uh, Tommy is uh, the husband of Femke, who is one of the um, uh, the co-owners of Submarine. Everyone kind of knew each other already, so it, right. it, so it made sense to bring Submarine in to to be the sort of the animation producer. I get. Were there then specific roles Submarine was responsible for, or was the kind of labour divided among the different international studios? Oh, it's a very clear delineation of roles. It's like we did, we do, you know, we received the scripts from from Kate Purdy and uh, Raphael Bob Weisberg, who are the writers on the show. It comes to it comes to Amsterdam, where where I'm I'm with Hisco, and we do all the storyboarding and editing. We edit the animatic together. Mm-hmm. Once the animatic is is finished, we uh, it goes. Uh, Hisco flies over to LA, shoots the episode. It, the, the episode is. The, is edited in LA. Um, once it's edited together, the live action, um, all the rotoscopy, so the, the sort of like the hand line work on the characters, is done in Minnow Mountain in Texas. And so it comes. So that is basically the whole episode will be black and white, kind of looking like a comic book, moving comic book. Mm. And uh, and then and then submarine are responsible for everything after that. So that's like the. Uh, the colouring, the shading of the characters, and but also creating all the backgrounds and all the visual effects and the compositing. So we, so we, so we, we did a large amount of that work uh, in close collaboration with Tornanta and Minna Mountain in the state. Hmm. Three, three different time zones. We have to do it. <laughs> so it's, it's always a sort of logistical acrobatics to uh, actually speak to each other on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> I had sort of yeah. speculated in a in a recent podcast we were talking about the show and sort of theorizing what the production process for it might have been ah, and um inevitably I think I, I got it wrong. Um I had assumed <laughs> that to an extent the live action footage would have kind of informed the color and shading and been run through a kind of filter. But if I understand it right, were you guys actually kind of like hands-on recreating the color. Well, no, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, it's an interesting point, and we and we we went through a lot of sort of research and development to how we were going to do this. Hmm. I mean, if you imagine there are eight twenty-two-minute episodes, and you you do hand shading and hand coloring, um, you're not going to finish the the series until you know twenty twenty-seven. So we did have to be a little bit smart with that, and so the, so you're you're kind of halfway right, uh, I would say. We at Submarine quickly realised we needed to develop a, a technique where we could we could take the colour and the shading from, uh, or the colour and the lighting, I'd say, from 
the live action footage and run it through a, a, a sort of a, a synthesis, like a process where we could give that color and, sh- and lighting information to the animators. Now you can't, you can't just use that because it looks very, um, uh, blocky and sort of, um, it, it doesn't look very particularly elegant. So mm-hmm. the animator's job is then to sort of like stylize it and make it blend into the painted world and give it a hand drawn touch. But we, we did have to be smart and use, um, some of the information from the footage for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. And your specific role on the project, you were line producer, is that right? Yeah, line producer in on for submarine. Yeah. Can you describe a bit what that uh, that role entails? Yeah, it's a sort of multifaceted role in that um, I I know exactly how long each process should take in terms of mandate, right? So I'm so I'm guarding our budget, as it were. Yeah. So I work with a team. I have a production manager and I have um, six or seven production coordinators who each look after their their departments, the storyboarding, layout, uh, 3D VFX, the oil painting department. And I just oversee that, that everything is being done, um, that nothing is going over budget or over schedule. So I'm sort of like the guard of that for, for the submarine side. Uh, but then it's also, it's not just that, it's, it's also sort of people management as well. So I was um, responsible for um, hiring everybody and like to a certain extent finding the people we needed because it was a, a, a an animation pipeline which has never been done before. And um, having to try to find all that talent was uh, a, a task in itself. And then just being there for Hisco, the director, uh, being the spokesperson for submarine when we when we speak to uh, the studios in in the states and making sure everyone's happy you know mm-hmm. making sure that like every friday night we we uh, go to the bar and sort of celebrate what we've done every week because it's a long old process and people are working really hard and really want to make sure that there's a good uh, vibe going on in the studio as well it's supposed to be fun right <laughs> <laughs> Had you uh, had you worked with Hisco before? No, I never had. I never had. There, there were some people. Uh, Thierry, my colleague, who is the technical director, he'd worked with him before on um, Montage of Heck, hmm. the uh, Kurt Cobain documentary. But it was my first time working with Hisco. Hmm. Was he easy to work with? He's fantastic. I hmm. love Hisco. He, um, I mean, he's a true artist. You know, he's a he's a uh, extraordinary oil painter and animator and filmmaker in his own right. And he is uh, just a sort of unique personality. I think, you know, he needs, he needs people around him who are going to sort of like help him focus that, uh, that creative energy he has. That was kind of my role as well, as well as Nora, who was his, uh, his, his fantastic assistant. Um, but the one great thing about his working with his is is one creative vision. Um, and that everybody trusts. And so decisions get made fast. And I can't, I can't emphasize enough how, um, how important that is in keeping a, keeping a, um, project like this running on schedule. Mm. So yeah, I love it. I love working with this guy. With Kate and Raphael, did you have much interaction with them or were they just sort of responsible for the, the writing and 
I mean, personally, I didn't talk to them very much. I mean, I was on a few sort of Skype calls with them. His goes uh, much closer to them because he talks to them about sort of like the minutiae of story issues. Mm. Uh, you know, like if, if there needs to be sort of script changes or like what is the motivation of this character and like, and therefore, you know, say for, say for example, Alma is like um, having a sort of uh, going through some sort of trip or hallucination in her head. Hisko will need to know like what is the physical manifestation of that because what is her, what's going on in her head? And Kate will know because Kate created this world. Mm. You know, like occasionally, like as a line producer, I will need to sort of talk to the writers and just say, look, there's too many locations in this thing. Can you cut out a few, please? I can't, I can't, can't create all these locations. Or, or just sort of like, just sort of, yeah, it's, it's always, it's always my job is to sort of like bring creative back down to the ground, you know, back down to earth, <laughs> which is, a, which is a shame. Mm. Uh, but yeah, but, but so, yeah, but they're, they're also sort of like very interesting, uh, pleasant people to work with. Fantastic, um, imagination and, and, and storytelling skills that Kate has. Extraordinary. Mm. Have you watched the season, by the way? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, uh, we checked it out a few weeks ago. Oh, great. I mean, I've been sort of looking at the kind of response to it, and it's been pretty positive. Yeah. And I'd be interested to see if there was kind of more in store for it, or because they did a pretty good job of wrapping it up while not wrapping it up, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, cer- I certainly know that uh, Kate and uh, Raphael have, have um, you know, more in store in their imagination. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, but yeah, but you know, your guess is as good as mine. If it's uh, actually going to sort of go ahead into a, into a, into a second season, um, you know, I keep my fingers crossed mm. and um, just waiting to see. I mean, you know, the, the, those critical responses that we've got on on season one are just absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. So it feels very positive. But this is my first time working with um, with, with with an Amazon or you know a, a, a VOD platform. So. You don't you don't get immediate box office results. You have to wait for like the, the streaming results. And so I don't mm. really know. I don't really have any insight into that at all. <laughs> Wish I did. Yeah, it's. I'm interested to see, you know, how things kind of um, progress with Amazon as far as original content goes, because it feels like you know there are other streaming platforms that are really jumping on like original animated content. Yeah, and it would be nice to see that continue and snowball yeah i mean that's that'd be fantastic it's fantastic for independent animation studios as well you know mm. to, to have that ability have that ability to come up with original concepts and be able to sort of be able to pitch them to the amazons and the netflixes and have that that extra sort of financial channel option is, is exciting so the uh, the nature of the beast usually means people can't talk about stuff on the go or coming up but is there anything that submarine have lined up that you're able to talk about or uh, to look out for let me see what we're doing we are working on where is Anne frank which is a um a feature film a feature animation about Anne frank um that's what we're currently working on in the studio with uh directed by ari Folman. Oh. That's going to be. I don't know when the release date of that is. We've only just started the production, so I think it's probably a couple of years away. I think I'm not the line producer on that, so I don't have so much information. But uh, we're also working on a very interesting um, hybrid um, d- dance and animated film called Capalia. Are you, are you aware of uh, 
the uh, ballet Capelia? Uh, I am not. <laughs> no. Well, it's a it's a it's a it's, it's a classic sort of ballet uh, story. I think it's about two or three hundred years old, uh, but we've adapted it um, to be a sort of a modern story um, about sort of beauty and uh, like what beauty is. And it's it's we're working with the National Ballet here in Amsterdam. So there's a ballet dancer called Michaela de Print, and she's 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 become sort of like a sort of big name in uh, in ballet. She stars in our film, and it's directed by um, Jeff Tudor, who is a is an English uh, dance director in co-production with Ben, uh, a director duo called Ben and Stephen, Ben. Uh, Tessa and Stephen de Bull from Beast Animation in Belgium. So they're taking part of the uh, taking care of the animation, and Jeff's taking care of the dance. But we have just this summer finished shooting the film um, all in green screen studio, and we will be placing the dancers in a uh, in a in a, a painted world. So it's a very similar um, pipeline to Undone, funnily enough. Hmm. So. Um, it's 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 a it's a story it's a story which is no dialogue and it's all told through dance and music, and uh, with animated elements. So um, it's and we're just going into production now because we finished shooting it. So it's a it's an, another exciting project actually. Fantastic! I look forward to uh, to seeing more of that. And then and then also you know as submarine we also have sort of plenty of other things in uh, in the development as well, which is always very exciting. But they're so far away from fruition I can't really talk about those but there is some pretty exciting stuff we're doing Thank you to Alex Dowding from Submarine talking about the making of Undone which is available to stream on Amazon Prime I think once again we've put the world to rights Uh, yeah and hopefully we'll see some of you guys at the Manchester Animation Festival for the squiggly quiz and the squiggly screening and all the other wonderful events anything else happening up north so yeah, uh, as if putting on an animation festival wasn't enough, I'm putting on a symposium, an academic symposium for animation archives, which is obviously a little side thing for my thing that I love doing. So a future for the past preserving our animation heritage uh, is coming up at the Waterside in Sale on Friday the 1st of November and then on the 2nd of November there'll be a tour of the Cosgrove Hall Films Archive as well as materials in motions I suppose little sister gig this year, which is Meet the Puppet Masters, which is an event that goes on uh, every single year. So uh, Meet the Puppet Masters this year has uh, an incredible lineup of people that have worked in animation uh, and, uh, and and puppetry. So that's always worth turning up to, and that's at the, the Waterside Arts in Sale. So if you're interested in animation archives, if you're interested in hearing about people talking about the work of uh, Richard Williams, uh, Ray Harryhausen, uh, and a whole heap of uh, of, of other uh, materials and stuff like that. Then the Materials in Motion uh, Manchester meeting, uh, Future for the Past, Preserving Our Animation Heritage, is on the 1st of November, and again on the 2nd of November, alongside Meet the Puppet Masters. So, uh, yeah, good weekend of animation, or sort of weekend, Friday, Saturday, of uh, animation shindiggery going on there, Ben. Fabulous, fabulous. Any uh, familiar squiggly faces? Uh, a very familiar squiggly face, Ben. Me. No. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the more kind of uh, pleasing face of Laura Beth Cowley, uh, who's going to be t- come and talking about all about 3D printing and why not to avoid it. Uh, so there's loads of fascinating uh, topics and conversations and, and 
things to to talk about there. So I'm really looking forward to catching up with everyone there. The uh, the eagle-eared podcast listeners will have probably heard Laura chuckling at that <laughs> heavy-handed prompt of mine just then. <laughs> no, it looks fun. It's a shame I uh, I can't make it myself, but uh, yeah, good stuff. I'm a little light on the plugs for film stuff, although there is a screening coming up for Sunscapades uh, in early November on the uh, 17th. It'll be playing at the Norfolk Film Festival. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Ooh. I mean, I must have done because I would have submitted it, but then <laughs> that'll be at the Norwich Puppet Theatre alongside from the looks of the trailer a lot of nifty looking films i know uh saraya raja's film is playing that's a film we've talked about uh, a couple of times if you guys are in the norfolk norwich area you might want to check that out uh then the next day in italy the magma mostra di cinema breve will kick off its 18th edition and that goes from the 18th through to the 23rd and i don't know exactly when sunscapades will be screening there but the website is magmafestival.org. That's all I've got lined up for that for the time being. Uh, one last thing just to, to throw out into the world. This might be of some interest to podcast people. As a previous podcast guest who passed away, unfortunately, in the spring, our friend Rosto, a uh, year or so before he got ill, he had brought me on in a sort of semi-secret capacity to help him out with a book he was working on, a graphic novel adaptation of the very, very long-form, decade-plus spanning web series that he did called Mind My Gap, which is, it was always, I think, a loftier ask of the audience to keep up with what exactly was going on. It was it spanned so many different animation styles and presentation styles. Some of them were quite straightforward web comics. Some of them had animated elements and interactive elements. And ultimately, it led to his creative partnership with Auteur de Minuit, with which he has produced many tremendous animated short films, including the The Wreckers Tetralogy and uh, The Monster of Nyx. And that, I think, is where everything really came together. Like, there's a lot more cohesion, I think, to that work. But the graphic novel adaptation project was a kind of, I think, effort to take that longer-form story from which it all sort of spawned and make it something that was, you know, had more of a beginning, middle, and end. It still is quite ambitious narratively, but, you know, as a contained book, I think it was a lot easier to kind of follow. The design style is absolutely gorgeous. It's very sort of evocative of the best work of people like Dave McKean, for example. And, um, uh, you know, has a very, if you were into that sort of like dark, gritty 90s era of graphic novels and comics, that I think is a clear sort of influence on, you know, the visual style. And I just, I found it a joy to kind of look through. I was essentially proofreading and consulting on how the story flowed and that sort of thing. But it was a very, you know, it was a very satisfying project to be involved with. I wasn't aware if there was ever going to be any plans to release it, because the last time I spoke to him about it in Zagreb a couple of years ago, it was sort of in limbo, really. Mm. I think they had done like a limited print run or something. Anyway, Auteur de Minuit are pushing to get an actual publication of it. Uh, they're crowdfunding for it uh, using... It's called Kiss Kiss Bank Bank, I think. Nice. I hadn't uh, heard of that particular platform before. I would love to see this thing released. I think they're going to get their goal anyway. Like, 
they launched a few days ago and it's already well over halfway funded. So this isn't so much a kind of like, hey, let's help these guys get their project funded. It's more a kind of making people aware of stuff they can get their hands on. And as far as the incentivized perk element side of things, these are pretty tremendous. I mean, obviously you can use it as a way to pre-order this book if you're interested in the book. Uh, You can also buy the films he's made on DVD and Blu-ray. You know, the the Wreckers Tetralogy on Blu-ray, I think, would have enough appeal, I'm sure, to a lot of people who've seen these films at festivals and such like. Mm-hmm. What I'm particularly chomping at the bit for is the notion of releasing some of his music on vinyl. So that's among the various perks you can get. We've played some of the music on the uh, music podcast specials, Animation Composed, we did a little while ago. Mm. And I always loved, you know, I mean, the The Wreckers Tetralogy is very music-oriented. They're almost, they're not quite music videos, but they all are songs that are kind of expanded into these crazy films. So, yeah, that's something I'm looking forward to. It looks like a lot of beautiful stuff that uh, that people could really do with on their shelves, and it's such a nice way to to put together the, the work of this I suppose, in a, in a very real sense, the only way to describe uh, Rosto and his output is is unique in all the in all the best senses of mm. the word. There's no one really creating uh, the work that he did, uh, and obviously it's on Kiss Kiss Bank Bank, so it's not on that those kind of union busting uh, kickstarters. I've got the link here, uh, so it's kisskissbankbank.com/en/project/rosto-mind-my-gap. Excellent. As with these types of campaign pages, that sort of outlines everything that's available and what they're going for. And um, they prepared some explanatory videos that talk a little bit more about the project and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm very glad this is happening. He's he's very much missed. And, um, you know, I'm like I said, I never really knew whether or not how known it was that he'd even made a book. Mm. So, uh, so I'm glad that they're pushing for this. It's funny, I was... Um, going through my book the other day which he sort of helped out with like he's one of the interview subjects in it and he had uh signed it like my sort of plan is at one point it would take a long time but to get everyone who helped with the book to sign a copy of it mm-hmm. <laughs> and i asked him to sign it at a festival and um he signed it motherfucker exclamation mark exclamation mark exclamation mark xoxo rosto <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like okay i'll take that um so then the next day um he asked me to sign his copy of the same book so i signed it ben motherfucker mitchell (laughs) and he looked at it and then looked at me and was like why did you sign that (laughs) and i'm like well because and then i showed him you know my copy that he'd signed the night before he's like i signed your book Much like me, he was so bladdered, but I had no idea he was. But he completely forgotten he'd ever signed a copy of my book, much less written motherfucker in it. <laughs> I've got my copy of your book here, and you signed it motherfucker as well. <laughs> Just a, a list of curse words. Yeah. <laughs> Happy motherfucking animating. <laughs> oh, that's a good story. If you have no idea who the hell we're talking about, by the way, he's worth looking up. Mm. His name's Rusto. He was on a couple of episodes of uh, the Squiggly podcast. He was on a recent episode of uh, Independent Animation and episode 48 of uh, this podcast. Uh, If you want to go back, have a listen to what he has to say for himself. 
guy did some tremendous work and uh sad that he won't be doing any more but mm. uh it's nice that stuff that had been previously unseen will see the light of day so that's my last little thing to bring up for today like i say hopefully see you guys at manchester keep your eyes on manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk see what events you can get to should be a fun one we'll see you at the all singing all dancing well not dancing just singing squiggly quiz absolutely so yes until then happy motherfucking animating <laughs>